Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the life that you give us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you that we can gather together in your presence this day to remember you, to honor you, to grow in you, to bless one another, have fellowship together, and honor you as we honor one another. Thank you for that privilege, Lord God. Thank you for our church. And we do pray, Father God, in this this month now that October has started, we are living in anticipation of a new outpouring of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come and pour out your Spirit as again as you did on the day of Pentecost. Come and pour out your Spirit again uh, as you did in the Hebridean Revival. Come and pour out your spirit again as you did in the great awakenings, the evangelical awakenings of the 1700s here in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Lord, we cry out to you. We are desperate for you. And we say, pour out your spirit upon us afresh and anew. We love you. We will continue to follow you no matter what. But we know that we need a fresh outpouring of your spirit if we are to thrive, if we are to serve, if we are to accomplish all that you have intended for us to accomplish to the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we pray for that, Lord God. We cry out to you for that. And in the meantime, Lord, as we wait on this, we want to declare the wonders of Jesus. We want to celebrate who Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for us. And we thank you for gathering us in the name and in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come, we also pray for the seven and a half million and more people within 15 miles of this church in any direction who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, for us, that is an unacceptable condition, and we know it is for you as well. Yet we also know that without the outpouring of your Spirit, that nothing really can be done But with the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, everything can be done. And so, Lord, we cry out to you for those seven and a half million people who need Jesus in their hearts and their lives, who don't even know that they need Jesus. We pray that you would awaken their hearts to their need for Jesus and draw them to your son, Jesus, and help your church all around this city be ready to receive new believers in Jesus Christ, from large churches to small churches. Let us all be ready to receive them and disciple them in your kingdom, not in denominations and not in religion, but into your kingdom. Now, Father, as we go to your word, I pray that you'd open it up to us, that we can read it and understand it and apply it and live it to the glory and honor of Jesus. And I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would rest on me to bring your word to your people today boldly and faithfully, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're just going to read verses 9 and 10. Peter writes this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then to 1 John, the first chapter, 
verses that I quote very, very often. We'll begin at verse 5 and read down to chapter 2, verse 2. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. One of the big challenges that we face right now uh, as Christians is the fact that uh, unlike probably any time ever before in, in my memory, certainly the church has been attacked and devalued, the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, and a lot of people, I, they, they've dropped out of church, they won't have anything to do with church, uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, for some people, oh, the church is full of hypocrites, uh, and to those people who make that complaint, you always want to say, well, come join us. You can add to our numbers. Uh, you know, to some people, the church really just doesn't meet my needs. Uh, to some people, uh, it's, uh, well, you know, it's a nice fun time to sing and, and, and do some good stuff. And I, and I like that, but it's really not all that important. For some people, it's the boring sermons uh, that go on way too long. For some people, it's lack of fellowship. You can come up with, you know, all, all kinds of examples why people uh, have dropped out of church, they've left the church. But one of the biggest reasons that, in a sense, it summarizes a lot, almost all of these things, is the fact that most people don't understand why church. And we have been conditioned by, by uh, the last 50, 60, 70 years or more uh, around the world to think that the church is about our benefit, that it, we go to church because of what we get out of it. And uh, many of the efforts that people make to get people to come to Jesus and get people to go to church is because, well, if you come to Jesus, you, you'll have all your needs met. If you come to Jesus, you get all your healing. If you come to Jesus, you'll, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You'll have all the relationships you want. Your life will work out. It will be better than it is right now. And the real truth is that sometimes you come to Jesus and your life gets worse, right? Uh, and so there's this, this benefit kind of perspective uh, to try to lead people to Jesus and, and the same way to lead people to church. We'll come to our church. We've got great youth ministry. We've got a great kids ministry. We've got a great worship team. We've got a great preacher. We've got great stuff going on. We've got a comfortable building. We've got this, that, or the other thing, enough parking. Uh, it's convenient to you. And, and all of this is, is an us-centered kind of approach to church. And initially, when you look at Peter and you look at this theme verse, 
you can almost say, well, maybe Peter's taking that approach. But if you look a little bit more closely, you realize very quickly that he's not. And Peter says, effectively, that we need to be together as the body of Christ. And that's what he's talking to about because he says earlier in the passage, as you come to him, the cornerstone, you like living stones are being built together to be a spiritual house. I don't know if you have a house or you live in a building, you might live in a tent, but one thing I've learned, because they've been working on our house for like eternity, one thing I've learned is that if you've got bricks in your house, this brick needs to be connected to this brick in order for the house to stand up. And if you have a situation where you got this brick connected to this brick, but you don't have a brick right there, you don't have much of a house. And so Peter says, we're all being connected. It's important because we are a royal priesthood. Uh, let, me, let me get all of them exactly like he says it there. Uh, you know, you, you memorize the scripture and you can quote the scripture back and forth, but then you, you get pressure and you just forget everything. You've, that's never happened to any of you, has it? But uh, okay, let's what, what he says. You are a chosen race. You know, that means that as Christians, no longer are we white, black, American, Chinese, British. We're a new race of people. And I like our race. I like the multi-hued dimensionality of the chosen race. We've been chosen by God. We're a chosen race. A royal priesthood. That means uh, we are a kingdom of priests. A kingdom priesthood. We're part of advancing God's kingdom into the world. We are a holy nation. We've been set apart as a special group for the purposes of God. We are a people for God's own possession. Isn't this amazing? God has chosen us because He wants us to be with Him for all eternity. That's what Peter's saying. That's what this means. God has chosen us as His people because He wanted us to be with Him for all eternity. That's who we are. That's who we are. This is our reality. This is who we are, not individually, but corporately. This reality doesn't exist individually. This reality, biblically, only exists corporately. It only exists as we are connected together. An individual stone is never a house. It's a stone. And it's useless unless it's connected to the house. That's what Peter's saying. Now, what is the purpose of all of this? And we might say, well, the purpose of all of this is so we can have our needs met. Or the purpose of all of this is so we can feel better. Or even the purpose of all this is so that we'll win the whole world to Jesus and that every single person will become a Christian because that's a really cool thing. Or that the purpose of all this is that there'll be a lot of healing or, or all of that kind of stuff. But that's not what Peter says. What is the purpose of all this? So that our purpose is we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that you there is plural, not individual. So the purpose of what God has done in making us a people, in making us the church, is so that we might proclaim the excellencies 
of Him, of Jesus in particular, who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And this word excellencies is talking about, uh, effectively, it's, it's, it's uh, a reference to uh, personal values. It'd be virtues. It's not uh, excellencies in the sense that, oh, wow, you're, you look good. Or, wow, you're really intelligent or wow, you've really done a good job. It's excellencies in terms of the, the individual's person, the individual's character, uh, who that person is, all the qualities of that person. And this idea of proclaim, you might think, oh wow, okay, so we need to go out on the street and proclaim on the street the excellencies, and this word doesn't prohibit that, but the primary focus of this word is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light as an act of worship to God. If people on the street catch it and they hear it, more's the better. But the purpose is to honor God, to worship God, and to build one another up by proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so for the next number of weeks, what we're going to be doing, what I'm going to be doing in terms of the sermon, is proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. That's the foundation. We're proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. We're going to celebrate who Jesus is and perhaps have some suggestions about what that means for us in the way that we live and how, in light of who Jesus is, how do we proclaim those excellencies, but that is our focus. And I wanted to lay that foundation. And today we're going to celebrate, proclaim Christ the righteous. Christ the righteous. In order to do that, We need to understand sin. It is my conviction that most people do not really understand how bad sin is. And we don't really have a picture in our minds of how foul and disturbing it is, even the smallest sin. So let me give you a picture. I've done this picture before, but you need to be reminded of it. Imagine that you have a toilet. And this toilet is being used by a lot of people. But the problem is, the flusher doesn't work. And so a lot of people throughout the day has been u- have been using the toilet. And you come in from the street after working very hard, dying of thirst. You know, you are so thirsty, you know you got to have water. And somebody comes and, and you know, they, they clear away a little space in the loo, dip in a little cup for you, and say, okay, this looks pretty clear, have a drink. How are you responding? Thankfully, not many of you had breakfast right before this. That is sin. That is how foul even the smallest sin is. And until we realize that, we don't get a picture. It's like how many people would say, well, okay, I only have four or five cancer cells in my body, so that's okay, I I, I won't pay any attention to it. 
oh, I, I only have a small, you know, just a couple of little malarial viruses. And so that's not going to make me sick. It does. Even the smallest bit is foul. And we have to understand how corrupting and foul and, and disgusting sin is if we're really to understand the amazingness of what Jesus Christ has done. Because sin is a problem. Sin is the problem in the world today. You cannot name me a single problem from uh, shoplifting to global warming to starvation and famine that does not have sin at its foundation. It's all around us. And the challenge is that we need to deal with sin. And so many people are trying to deal with sin. But the problem is you can't get to the EU and deal with sin because the European leaders won't even agree what sin is, let alone agree with what, uh, how you got to deal with sin. The United Nations can't do it. Uh, denominational leaders can't do it. Uh, the religions of the world can't do it. There's only one person that has dealt with sin and will deal with sin decisively, completely, completely eliminating it from the human race for all eternity, and that person is Jesus Christ. That person is Jesus. Jesus is the one who died on the cross. Jesus is the one who rose from the dead. Jesus is the one who dealt with the power of sin once and for all. He broke the power of sin in the cross. It was completely defeated because he lived his life as a sinless human being. He lived his life exactly like we are, except he was without sin. And then he willingly allowed himself to be placed on that cross to die there in our place for us as a sacrifice. Uh, but then he didn't stay dead. Sin would not have its victory over him. On the third day, he rose bodily from the dead and he ascended into heaven. And one day we know that he will come again and he will decisively remove all the sin and all the residue and all of the junk and all of the stuff uh, that there is. But in the meantime... We as his people can live our lives and we can live our lives free from the power of sin. In fact, if we are in Christ Jesus, we have been united with him and we have been set free from the power of sin. The problem is, many times we don't live it. Many times we don't realize it. And John is looking at this and he, and he, and he says, well, this is the case. He understands. He says, if you say that you don't have sin, if you say you never make a mistake, if you say you've reached sinless perfection, then you're wrong. And if you really try to push this, you're a liar. You're a liar. Because we all mess up because sin is still in the world. And as long as sin is in the world, even if we've overcome the power of sin in Jesus Christ, we will still deal with the issue of sin all around us. And we do. I mean, that's self-evident. And then John goes on to say, and as well, if you are walking in sin, which means if you are intentionally continuing to sin, do you know that you don't walk unless there's some intentionality to it? Uh, my body just doesn't start doing this and then this. That doesn't happen. 
My brain has to tell my body, walk. Uh, and then I have a choice to make whether or not I keep walking or whether or not I stop. It happens. It happens all the time. That's what, that's what we do. And John says, if you keep on walking in sin, in other words, if you keep on trying to sin and doing sin and committing sin, then don't fool yourself, you're not a Christian. Don't fool yourself, you've not been redeemed. Don't deceive yourself. So he says, you can't say you're, you're without sin, and at the same time, if you say you're a Christian, you cannot keep walking in sin. So what do we do? I mean, how, how can we deal with this? We deal with this in the same way we got our salvation in the first place, through Jesus Christ. And we deal with this because of the excellencies of Christ. And in this passage, John points out three excellencies of Christ that help us, on a day-by-day basis, deal with, the, with sin in our lives. Not only our own sin, but those who sin against us. Three excellencies of Christ, of who Jesus is, that we need to know and embrace in order to deal with the sin problem on a daily basis. First of all, we have an advocate. Jesus, the advocate. Jesus, the advocate. He says, okay, now, I'm writing to you this to you so that you, you may not sin. But if you do sin, which the, the implication here is when you do sin, when it happens, it doesn't have to happen, but when it does happen, you have an advocate who's Jesus. When, we, when this happens, we have Jesus, who is the sinless Son of God, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. And this word advocate, it's the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit uh, in, in the Gospel of John, uh, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. In other words, we're sinned, we've sinned here, we've made a mistake, we're exposed completely And what Jesus does as our advocate, he comes alongside of us and he argues our case before God. But because we're united in Jesus, because we're one with Jesus by grace through faith, by the power of God, we're united with Jesus Christ. When Jesus stands before God on our behalf, it's as if we are standing before God as well in the person of Jesus Christ. And so our advocate argues on our behalf to get the victory in our lives, to get us off the sentence. And he can do that because he's our advocate. I don't know about you. I've known a lot of solicitors in my time. I've known a few barristers in my time. But the one that I'd really want when the crunch came was Jesus. And that's exactly what John says he is. Jesus is our excellent advocate. And Jesus is always arguing on our behalf. He will not let us go. He will not stop arguing on our behalf. He will not stop being our advocate. So Jesus is our advocate. Then you begin to think, okay, well, how can Jesus be our advocate then? I mean, we've messed up. We're clearly guilty. We've sinned. We are, we're, we're God's children, yes, uh, but, but we've clearly sinned. We've clearly made a mistake. We've clearly done something wrong you know, how, how can Jesus be the answer for that? It comes because of the second thing that John says about Jesus here, the second excellency of Christ, and that Jesus is the righteous one. 
So Jesus is our advocate, Jesus the advocate, and he's an effective advocate because he's righteous. That means that Jesus is in a perfect right relationship with the, with the Father. Jesus is in a perfect right relationship with us as, as believers. And Jesus, who never sinned when he lived his life here on the earth, who is united with us in a perfect relationship with us, united with his Father in a perfect relationship with his Father, stands before the Father on our behalf. And he stands before the Father as the one who is perfectly righteous. Jesus is perfectly righteous, having never done anything wrong. But he's united himself with our humanity. And so he stands before the Father and says, Father, I'm their advocate, and I stand before you, and I have chosen to put myself in their place. And I have chosen to take every punishment that they might have deserved because of the foulness of their sin. Now, sometimes for people today, the idea of punishment gets a little offensive, and that's because they don't understand sin. So just go back to the first illustration if you need to understand that. Uh, so I've taken all their punishment. I've done all the stuff. I've cleaned everything up. And so I'm arguing on their behalf, and I am there as their advocate. So Jesus is not only our advocate, but he is the righteous advocate. He is the righteous one who stands alongside of us before the Father. And then Jesus, John says, one other thing. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Isn't that a great word? Everybody say propitiation. Now, how many times have you said that in your life? Probably for most of you, you say, well, that's one. Propitiation. It's not a word that we really talk about. And it's a word that has quite a long history, a word a little bit difficult to understand. But in the Greek... It's the same word, the root of this word is the, the word which we get the English word hilarious, which that sounds kind of strange, but it's the same root, hilarious. And propitiation is a, a verb for, a, a form of hilarious. Now, propitiation over time took on the meaning in both secular Greek uh, as well as in uh, uh, Jewish history, later, later Jewish history, and then certainly in Christian history, of being a gift that makes the gods happy. That was how the Greeks would understand it. In other words, you, the, the gods are angry with you, but you give them this gift, and it pleases the gods and so the anger is taken away. Uh, and by the time it gets down a little bit further, it, it takes on more religious implications and more cultic in, in, implications. A cultic meaning not a, a demonic cult, but in terms of various religious uh, observances and things like that. But ultimately, what this means is that Jesus is the one who on our behalf pleases God even in the midst of our sinfulness. Jesus, as the propitiation of our sins, is the one who wins God's grace, who wins God's favor, who wins God's joy for us. Now the picture here is not of a Jesus who is satisfying an angry God. And if we go down that path, 
we are actually distorting the implications of what John is saying here. John is saying that God is both the source of the gift as well as the giver of the gift. So this came from God in terms of his son Jesus, and it wasn't God saying, well, son, get down there. I want to beat you on behalf of these stupid humans. It was God the Father saying, son, we need to do something about this because we want them to be with us for all eternity. Remember, a people for God's own possession. We want them to be with us for all eternity, but there's this sin problem, and the son saying, uh, dad, I will go down on their behalf, and I will become one of them and live, uh, live a sinless life as they should have lived so I can be the propitiation back to you. So it's a relationship of God where God the Father and God the Son together have determined to do something for us that we never could have done on our own. We never could have worked hard enough or been good enough or or done whatever was taken because sin was so foul and so corrupting there was no way outside of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect gift of Jesus, there was no other way to deal with the sin problem. So the Father and the Son willingly together came up with this so that Jesus then, in doing everything the Father desired, in in perfect unity with the Father, is the one then who empowers the Father's grace and mercy and favor and joy to come upon us. So the idea here is, first, Jesus is our advocate. He's coming alongside of us. And Jesus is righteous, so he stands before us, in a sense, in unity with us. But then Jesus is the propitiation, which means that he enfolds us into this gracious relationship between the Father and the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit so that we are brought into this relationship and God looks at us and he's not looking at us as an angry judge with his Son standing next to us. He's looking at us with joy in his heart, with love in his eyes. He's looking at us with passion and purpose and saying, Son, I really love these people and thank you for bringing them to me as a perfect offering through yourself to me and let's enfold them in our eternal joy. This is cool. You understand that? It's not because of anything you've done and it's certainly not because of something bad you've done. Jesus is doing this out of His grace. This is the excellency of Christ. This is the reality that we live in. This reality of relationship with the Father and the Son where even when we make a mistake, even when we mess up, even though Jesus has already paid the price for all our sins, even when we mess up, even when we mess up, we don't step out. But we have this advocate who comes alongside of us stands before God as the perfect righteous one and has by his blood enfolded us as the propitiation for our sins so that our sins do not diminish the hilarity, the joy, the love of the Father toward us, which is all because of grace. And that's our reality if you're a believer in Jesus. That's the reality in which you live every single day 
And that's the reality that we have to declare to the world. It's no wonder that so many people don't want to know Jesus. Because if you think about a lot of the preaching we've heard over the years, it's all been, oh, you're such a bad, foul person. You know, it, it, we've taken that initial illustration. We've said, you know, you are the bits that are floating in the, in the loo. We're like, you know, who wants to be told that? And that's not true. We've been contaminated. We've been corrupted by sin. Certainly. We deserve to be discarded. Certainly. But this was the eternal plan of God. Father and Son and the power of the Spirit all together three in one to enfold us into this life to make us the chosen race. Now this is extraordinary. And it's all about Jesus. 100% Jesus. So how do we live in this reality? I mean that really is where it comes to. If we don't understand how we need to live, and by the way, how we live will proclaim whether or not this is true. How we live will proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And so we have to be talking about how do we live in this reality? Does John give us some clues? And obviously he does. In order to live in this reality, we need to understand the first thing that John said, God is light and in him is no darkness. God is light. He is not a ball of anger. He is not a, a dark mass of wrath. God is light. And there's no darkness in him. And we need to believe that and understand that. Because if we don't, we will always live in fear of his wrath against us. Again, saying all this does not diminish the power of sin. Sin is very, very important to God, obviously. Obviously. So that's the key. We, we've, got, we've got to remember God is light. Second thing, John tells us here that we need to walk in the light as he is in the light. We need to walk in the light. We spend too much time covering over our sin. We spend too much time trying to hide ourselves, thinking that if people really knew how broken I was, if people really knew how messed up I was, then they'd turn away. And sometimes they do, frankly. But most of the time, people are turned off by Christians because they're not real, not because they struggle. Most of the time, people are turned off by Christians who say, uh, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm just happy. I'm blessed. Thank you, Jesus. I'm, I'm going from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. Hallelujah. My life is better today than it was yesterday. I'm feeling happier today. I'm feeling healthier today. Everything is perfect in my life. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. And people say, that's not real. It's not real. That's not, you know, we, we might think we go from mountaintop to mountaintop, and sometimes we do, but there's valleys that goes there. There's struggles. There's some days when I don't feel like a child of God, but it doesn't change the reality of who I am. And it's time we need to walk in the light, not be ashamed, not be afraid, not walk around in guiltiness knowing that we've been forgiven. So we have to be in the light with one another. Sometimes being in the light, what you see is not very pretty. Now, sometimes it's easier to be in the dark because if you're in the dark, you don't see how gray my hair is. Uh, if we're in the dark, you don't know where that bad breath smell is actually coming from. Uh, if you're in the dark, there's so many things we hide. But the reality of life 
is living life in the light. And we must live that light in the light, live that life in the light in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with God. You do not have fellowship with God without fellowship with God's people. You don't. That is not a biblical reality. There is no way to argue that from the scripture. You have to be in fellowship with God's people and find people to be in fellowship with. Do what you need to do, but you've got to be in fellowship with God's people because that's essential for living in the light. Be an authentic person in fellowship with other people. All of that's background. Then we need to confess our sins. When we mess up, when we sin, we need to confess. Sometimes it's helpful to confess to one another. That can be a real blessing. Uh, there have been many times when I've had to say to a brother uh, in Christ, oh, I'm really struggling in this, would you pray for me? Uh, it's been a great blessing in my life. Most of the time when I sin, I just need to confess to the Lord. Now, confess means that you, you agree with God that what God says about what you've done is true. A lot of times we confess like, oh God, I'm sorry for getting really, really angry with Elsie. Uh, I haven't picked on you forever, so I'm sorry about getting really, really angry with Elsie, but she made me mad. That's not confession. That's justification. You've got somebody who justifies you, and that's Jesus. And if you try to justify yourself, none of this works. So we confess our sins. We confess our sins. And as we confess our sins, we understand, we believe, we receive that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and not only forgive us, release us from our sin, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that Jesus takes all the foulness of sin that was in us at the point that we sin and he washes it away completely. And when Jesus washes away sin... The implication of the passage of what John's saying is that Jesus washes away not only the consequences of our own sin, but actually the consequences of other people's sin against us. So if other people have sinned against you and you've been carrying that around, one of the best ways to deal with that is actually confessing your own sins to God and receiving the cleansing of Jesus because when Jesus cleanses you by his blood, he washes you, he takes that away spiritually, uh, he takes that away and not only neutralizes that, but also neutralizes what other people have done. The other people sin against you. But it's key that we have to receive this and believe it because it's absolutely true. And if you don't receive the cleansing and you don't believe the cleansing, then you won't experience the cleansing. And this is not a case of positive thinking. It's a case of saying, okay, God, I believe your word says this is true and this is what I'm going to do. And as we live in that reality, walking in the light, living in the light, fellowshipping with one another, confessing our sins, and receiving the cleansing of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives on a day-by-day basis, we are living in a way that proclaims the excellencies of Jesus. And that's truly extraordinary. And that's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. In coming to this table, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his wonder. It's all about his excellencies. As we eat the bread, we're, we're eating his body. 
all that he did for us and his body broken on the cross. As we drink the cup, we're drinking that blood, all that he's done and pouring out his life on the cross for us. And it reminds us that Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and allows us to celebrate this reality together. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the wonders and excellencies of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you that you are our advocate. Thank you. Thank you that you are the righteous one. Thank you. Thank you that you are the propitiation for our sins. We love you and we praise you. We pray now that you'd bless this bread and this cup, that they would be for us the body and blood of our Lord.